Brooklyn party and I wasn't invited? <gasps> it's about time you showed up, Will. Mariner, this makes us even. You know Riker? Yeah, who do you think hooks me up with all my contraband? Dude is flush with Romulan ale, elite... I'm sorry, what was that? Uh, we're still in red alert. Target those ships and fire. We're talking about this later. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and swinging his leg over the chair right next to me. This is Tyler Orton peeling off his sideburns to reveal a hidden goatee. Why, I thought you were William Riker, not Thomas Riker. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. And we're here this week to talk about Jonathan Frakes slash William Riker as the ambassador of Star Trek, question mark? Like, has he taken over the role from, like, Leonard Nimoy in, like, current fandom? I think that's one of the questions that we want to address here, Cam, uh, when it comes to one Jonathan two takes freaks as they like to call him in the biz (laughs) yeah he's a character that i've always been fascinated by because i remember when i was younger and had only the vaguer understanding of tng between you know a handful of episodes here or there watching the movies i I always had the opinion of just like Riker, like i don't know he's he's like a nothing the show is about you know data picard jordy you know wharf characters like that and it is really fascinating going through the series and even when we talk about the series you know week to week on this podcast how often Riker plays such a prominent role but I guess in some ways in a very unflashy kind of way. It is interesting because I I felt very much the same way as you did growing up and then when I go back and watch the series I in my most recent rewatch I realized no he is like second on the call sheet after Patrick Stewart, and it shows. They center so many episodes around him, and even in the episodes that aren't Riker episodes, he always seems to be playing like a central park. Uh, not a central park, a central <laughs> park. You're, are you just uh, thinking about the Friends reunion from the other day? <laughs> I, I almost said central perk in uh, every episode. Yes. Well, Tyler, yeah. the thing about Riker is he'll be there for you. <laughs> like he's been there before. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, who's the Gunther of uh, the Enterprise Ooh. D? Oh, the Enterprise D. Well, uh, do we have to say Guinan? Because it's kind of the same role. Well, I, I, I'm thinking about kind of characteristically. I sure. think it's more of Barkley. You know? Yeah. Oh, 100%. It's Barkley. Yeah, because okay. okay. With Barkley, you know, there's a bit of the crush on Deanna Troy, which is kind of the Rachel. And um, Gunther relationship. Yeah, I could totally see that. Makes sense. So by default, does that make Riker the Ross of the Enterprise D? Um, yeah, it probably does. Um, well, he's kind of the um, the more mature of the group. He's a professional. I think that actually makes sense. Now, we ha- we never really got to screaming Riker, where, you know, like season five, for example, he just started screaming words a lot. But... Um, yeah, I think he is the Ross. <laughs> Red Ross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess that makes Patrick Stewart the Elliot Gould of it all. <laughs> In so many ways, but the Elliot Gould from California Split. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
just watched California <laughs> split for the first time like a month ago. I actually did because of your letterbox logging. I saw it on Amazon Prime and I watched it. What a great movie. Anyone out there who it's did not a- understand that joke, go watch <laughs> California split on Amazon Prime. It's amazing. <laughs> Back to our uh, regular scheduled programming <laughs> Yes. Um, a lot of fans might, or a lot of listeners might be wondering, like, why are we kind of circling in on Frakes and Riker in this discussion? A lot of people will just automatically default and say, no, you know, if we're talking about, like, active, you know, people within Star Trek, obviously Patrick Stewart is the ambassador. He's taken over from Spock. I think he can make a, a, an argument there. I don't buy that argument, but uh, let, let's talk through it, though. Uh, Much like Nimoy, I I think Patrick Stewart still, to this day, very much resembles the character that he played for a long, long time, whereas I don't necessarily think that's the case for Shatner, and I think in pop culture that that does play a big part in everything. And I think, you know, Patrick Stewart resembles his character and is a more iconic character more so than Frakes and Riker at this point. I don't know about you, but I, 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 I still don't think that... Patrick Stewart is the ambassador for Star Trek at this point, and, and for a couple of reasons. But where might you fall in this argument? I agree in that Patrick Stewart is probably the biggest living icon of Star Trek. Um, you know, I mean, you can say him or Shatner, but like Shatner has such a often like um, kind of iffy relationship with the fandom of Star Trek that I just don't feel they kind of worship him the way they do Patrick Stewart. Um, so I think that causes a little bit of a division there in terms of looking at Kirk as an actual living icon of Star Trek, the, the preeminent one. Whereas like Picard, yes, but Patrick Stewart is someone with such a busy career. Um, on, you know, he's in so many of the things, theater, the X-Men franchise. He's almost too big for the Star Trek world. So you don't have that relatability or that accessibility that you get with John, with Jonathan Frakes. Like it feels like whether it's all the convention stuff he does, we're going to talk about that later in the show. Um, Patrick Stewart doesn't keep up that sort of appearance work as much. Also, Jonathan Frakes throughout the franchise, and we'll go into all his directorial work and his appearances on the other shows. He seems much more um, consistent in leaving his footprint all over the world of Star Trek. Whereas Patrick Stewart, we did get the return in Picard, but Beyond that, it, it's it's less of a ongoing commitment versus a special event kind of thing. I agree. Like it seems as if Frakes had this consistent, you know, anchor towards Star Trek. Not not something pulling him down, but he was far more engaged with the franchise than say Patrick Stewart was in the years that you know fell between say Nemesis and the premiere of Picard. You know, I, I think Frakes has kept himself much more in the loop of the franchise. It really kind of representing it. And I, I also maybe draw some parallels uh, between uh, Nimoy and Frakes if he's taken over that crown of, you know, the ambassador for Star Trek at this point. But um, they both play first officers. They both directed two films for the franchise. And we've discussed this on the show before, but had they not been able to land Nimoy for that role in Star Trek 2009, their next go-to was going to be Jonathan Frakes. And I think that is very telling about why they would have reached out to him. I like, Kim, do you think if they had their druthers, they would have gone to Patrick Stewart? Or do you think it actually just played better thematically for them to have gone to Frakes? I struggle with this one because I would love to hear their notes 
on how this would have worked? Like, what is the connection to a younger alternate timeline Kirk and Spock to like William T. Riker? I'm sure they had a answer to this question. I just would love to know what it was because you could say like, well, why not George Takei, you know, for Sulu representing that era. They obviously had something with Riker. I just like to know what it was because I think it would have worked in terms of an iconic image of, um, you know, him walking out with the, you know, the beard and all that audiences would have loved it. But yeah, like when it comes to Picard, I think that's probably maybe who they would kind of want. But I also wonder if he was priced out for them, what they were willing to pay perhaps because of, I don't know how much he was commanding on those X-Men films at a certain point, but he has to be uh, pricier than probably Nimoy was at this point, even. Well, I, I just think that they didn't even bother going to Patrick Stewart because he had long been doing interviews saying that he just wasn't interested in returning the franchise. I think they knew they yeah. just would not have been able to land him. And I think they knew that Frakes would have done it. And I think maybe some of the thematic parallels that they could have drawn there is, you know, I, I think about that speech that Spock gives to Spock at the end of uh, 2009. It's about friendship. But I wonder if they would have um, held closer to the idea of, you know, uh, first officer being there for the captain. And I like the the story would have had to be rewritten to a certain degree, especially if it's Kirk landing on the ice planet to be greeted by a a bearded Riker with snow all over his face. You know, at that (laughs) point, you know, Uh, there there would have been some rewriting, but it's just interesting. But I'll say this, like, I don't think his appearance would have quite hit home the same way that Nimoy's did in in that film. And one of the things that I look at, though, is I, I think. Freaks has this real passionate, like this passionate hardcore fan base going for him. Like, like they will roar when he's out there. I don't know if my mom would be able to identify who Jonathan Frakes is, but she would with Nimoy. And I think that's maybe kind of the difference between hardcore fans versus some of the more casual fans at, at this point. Yeah, and it's interesting because Next Generation was hugely watched, like a very, very popular show. I think when you're, you know, 2009, the intention of that film was to introduce Star Trek to an audience that didn't love Star Trek. And when you have Nimoy walk out as Spock, that's an instant icon. The whole audience understands, even if they don't watch Star Trek, like just the image of Spock is all you need. Riker walks out. I think there's probably a familiarity, but probably people whispering like, who was he on that show? Like, what what was his role? Who is this guy? I know kind of who he is, but I don't understand what he would be doing in this movie. If they couldn't get Frakes for that, and they couldn't get Nimoy, realistically, who do you think they might have tried to put into that role as kind of the legacy character handing the baton off to this Kelvinverse era? I mean, I would have thought it would have been uh, Brent Spiner as before. <laughs> there you go. Um, data, I mean, I, I joke, but like, uh, you know, whether it's B4 has now been grown into data, um, I think that would have worked, but it's kind of confusing because of the movies. Um, I'm trying to think of who an audience really latches onto that they're going to kind of jolt up like, oh my God, maybe Sulu because of George Takei being quite loved and very recognizable. I think just thematically, data makes more sense than Sulu. Yes. You know? So I, I think Data probably, then, then they would have been uh, writing big checks to Spiner. Uh, how do you think the VFX uh, would have worked for Brett Spiner in 2009 
versus what we saw in the final version of Star Trek Picard uh, last year. No matter how shaky it is, it's probably better than on Picard. <laughs> okay, okay. I just wonder, do you think they would have tried to do like the uh, VFX? Because they had that in the third X-Men movie by that time uh, with yeah. uh, Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. They were working it there. Or do you think they just would have gone and, and really just caked the makeup onto Spiner uh, for that particular role? In that era, probably a mix of the two. Okay. Um, yeah. They would have been doing probably some de-aging, but they also probably weren't super confident in it yet. Like the X-Men stuff in Last Stand, it's there, but it was like ridiculed by a lot of people as well. So I don't know that they would be doubling down on that. Um, no, they'd be going to the X-Men Origins Wolverine uh, look that uh, Patrick Stewart had, right? So incredible. So incredible. That image um, came out the same year as uh, Star Trek 2009 as well. So like, maybe we don't want that, but I'm guessing they would have um, found ways to explain maybe why data looks different or something like that. Something to do with, I don't know, the time travel process or something. Yeah. Well, so I, I wonder if we want to kind of chart a path for, you know, how Riker and Frakes have become so intertwined within this franchise, something that goes beyond, say, Michael Dorn, who's very iconic as war, but I don't mm -hmm. think he's as intertwined in the franchise, despite appearing, I think, in more episodes than any other main character, perhaps any other character, period. I, I, I think it goes down to a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, a lot of in-front-of-the-camera stuff, but um, look, look, Kim, let's get into it. Beyond his appearance as you know, William T. Riker for the first couple seasons of Next Gen, he made it very clear to Rick Berman that he wanted to direct. He shadowed TNG directors for a long time. He says that he put it 300 hours into the editing bay just to learn the craft. Do you think things could have gone wrong had his tenure at Star Trek Film School gone with an episode that wasn't as exceptional as The Offspring? Like the script that he got for his debut? I don't know that as much as dependent on just that one episode because... I'm sure if we go back and look, there's been Trek actors who directed that maybe their first episode wasn't a home run, but I think probably him doing The Offspring and continuing with a streak of episodes that are all really good probably gave the studio and Berman and crew a lot of confidence in training actors to direct from that point forward. Um, but I think it does kind of bolster the legend of Jonathan Frakes as kind of the... Uh, the trailblazer of the Trek actors, the one who kind of did good for the company and ultimately gave them two movies, one of which was the most popular TNG movie. What if he had ended up with like just a stinky script that <laughs> his directing would not have been able to overcome that bad script? Do you think they would have said, well, we had the fun little experiment with letting an actor direct an episode, enough of that? So sort of like he got assigned to do The Survivors at the start of season three? Cam, I, I need to send you a screenshot because I, I literally wrote the survivors in my notes. <laughs> I swear. I, I, I'm i not kidding, listeners. I, I swear to God. Wow. I was like bouncing around in my head of early season three. I'm like, evolution isn't funny enough to say, ooh, the survivors, the one with the two old people. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, I, I think a lot of it would have to do with the hunger of Jonathan Frakes after that episode. Like, if they're happy, say the episode comes out exactly the same pretty much as it is now, I don't think they're like, well, that experiment failed. I think they would probably still be like, okay, you want to do another one this season? Sure, we'll slot you in. 
I think it maybe depends on the output. Like post survivors, if he's like working on, I don't know, some other, you're gonna have to fill in the blank here, some other random episode later in season three or early season four. Um, maybe then like the enthusiasm and the excitement of training these others, these other actors kind of dies down, but I could totally see him continuing on through the TNG run doing the odd episode, but probably not becoming the go-to kind of Trek TV director he is now. Yeah. If it's a one-two punch of the survivors followed by the hunted, I don't think he's (laughs) necessarily getting uh, a third time at bat. I need to rewatch The Hunted because whenever I think about it, I always think of, you know, the Tosk episode from DS9. Like that's, capi- uh, was it Captive Pursuit? I always think of like that type of story. What is The Hunted one about again? Uh, it's just kind of like this rebel dude on a planet and uh, Dr. Crusher is kind of stuck there. It, it's it's so boring. It, it's just so unbelievably boring. And we talk about generic eight, uh, 90s guy. This is generic 80s guy. Like, which mm. is just kind of a fascinating thing there with, with uh, kind of that, uh, that that generic 80s haircut, too. The sad thing is I rewatched The Hunted probably like a year ago. And the fact that I have no memory of it, that's probably pretty damning criticism of it right there. Yeah. So, look, he, he beds himself as a regular director on uh, Next Generation. He goes on to direct another seven episodes. And I wonder if we should talk about kind of directing and what it means in Star Trek. So I wonder if a lot of people aren't even quite sure what it means because because mm. th- there's two components here and for any given director um they lean towards one component or the other one of it is talking to actors talking to them about their performance what they should be feeling how they should be reacting to their other performers and a lot of this is kind of the technical stuff you know just like hey how do i want the camera to move how does the camera tell the story in a visual way and like bring to the script to life and tell the story visually. And um, a lot of act, a lot of directors will just lean on, say the director of photography to set up where all the cameras are. And that director will instead just focus on the actors. Other directors, they don't even care about the actors. They, they kind of see them as props and they're like, they're, they're far more interested in the movement of the camera and, and how you do this visual storytelling. And I, my guess uh, is that Frakes, um, he seems quite beloved by the actors. I, I, I think he, during his tenure on Star Trek, uh, the Berman era, yeah. which is Cam, not the most visually captivating era of Star Trek, I think that's why he became kind of like a, a favorite go-to on set for having him as a director. In, in that, I, I, People often forget, actors are, are, are sensitive souls. <laughs> yeah. You need to talk to them in a way that does not make them feel insecure about their performances. And I think that's why other actors often make really good directors, especially in kind of a format like, you know, say, Star Trek The Next Generation. And also the thing about TNG and much of the Berman era is that Trek at this point isn't like the visual showcase that it would become in, like, say, Discovery or Picard. At this point, it is kind of like plays taking place every week on TV, just in sci-fi. And so you have an actor very well trained in theater, coaching these actors through very specific language. They so often compare Shakespearean dialogue to Star Trek dialogue in terms of having to memorize it and deliver it with authority, even though a lot of it, the actors don't necessarily understand. So I think it's a very tough skill set, And Jonathan Frake seems very capable to get it across. And I don't know how much 
um, input he had on which TNG scripts he got, but it seemed like he had a pretty good eye if he was able to, you know, throw his name into the hat for some of them in terms of knowing which episodes to hold on to and which ones he could translate from the page to the screen. My understanding is it was pretty much kind of assigned to him at random, like at the beginning of the year, like you have episode, you know, 7x15. And whatever script he gets, that's the one he's got to work with. That That's my understanding. I, I could be mistaken, though, because I, I, maybe I'll just point out, um, do you know what the last episode of Star Trek The Next Generation he ever directed was? Yes, it was Sub Rosa. <laughs> yes. An eye for the scripts. Well, uh, because I just wonder also maybe, because that's usually the way I've always been uh, led to believe as well. It's more random in terms of what they get. But then you kind of, when you look at the list of them and you see, you know, the drum head, cause and effect, um, the chase, episodes like that. Um, I wonder if it was more that, you know, Berman and crew recognized how good he was and made sure that their stronger scripts went to him, at least until maybe some roses are like, we don't know what this is. Let's see what Jonathan Frakes does with it. But the other ones seem pretty consistent tonally and quality wise. Yeah. Season seven was such a crapshoot, though, just in general, right? Well, if you're going to direct an episode in season seven, like, go across the board. Um, you know, you can probably rule out the finale and, you know, some of the splashier things. What's the one you grab? Why not go for the craziest one? I mean, um, Gates McFadden did a Genesis. Great choice. Like, if you're going to get one, go for the crazy one. So, yeah, that's I, what you want to wind up with, right? I still don't think these are choices, though. No, I, choices is the wrong word. But if you're going to wind up with an assignment in season seven, oh, those okay. are the episodes you would choose if you if you could, right? Like you you should go sure, for the crazy sure. ones. Who wants to do like who wants to do the one with like Paul Sorvino, right? <laughs> okay, he has a name, Cam. It's Nikolai Roshenko. <laughs> is that the most referenced episode by us in terms of Star Trek: Next Generation season seven? It might be. What is the, is the episode Homeward? I think. I think that's the name of it. Is it or is it Firstborn? Uh I no, know. I think that's um, that's the Alexander episode. Is it? Oh, it? okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. Um, I, I'm just going back to Subrosa though briefly. Like I, I'll say this. He's working with Gates McFadden, who has to go places in this one. I think this is actually a good one for an actor to direct. And also, mm -hmm. this is not like a visually boring episode. There's a lot of crazy stuff going down here, whether we're dealing with, you know, Grandma shooting lightning bolts out of her hand, making that Ronin the Candle really sexy with that uh, that, that <laughs> green mist floating all about uh, Gates McFadden. This is... Uh, the reason this episode didn't work was, was not because of the directing. And I, I think it, it wasn't because of Gates McFadden either. Like she was working with what was on the page, which was kind of like this kind of, um, it, it was a strange choice for the writers. I'll say that got kind of this kind of Gothic lit sort of deal that they're trying to transplant into the next generation universe. When you have episodes like masks and uh, well, and, and even like Genesis, which is fun uh, in season seven, things are kind of going off the rails. And, um, it is telling that, like, they had the confidence with John and Frakes that, that, you know, when you do Sub Rosa, here is a gothic atmosphere episode that's not something the show does week to week. It's not something that he's done in the past on the show. Um, let's see what he does with it. And the atmosphere is there. The storytelling, well, that's up for debate. Everyone knows how they feel about Sub Rosa. But uh, visually, it's quite strong. 
Yeah. So look, uh, we've got, you know, he, he goes through this next gen era of directing episodes. Uh, after that, um, Rick Berman taps him to do Star Trek First Contact. And Frake said, look, they, they offered it to a lot of A-level directors. None of them were interested in the property. I got the call about a month later than uh, would have been nice. But uh, this guy's getting to do kind of his directorial debut here. And I, I think think about this as an actor where you go from, you know, kind of being, you know, number two on the call sheets for the syndicated television program to, you know, being able to actually transfer this into a feature film directing career like that just must have been kind of uh, pretty amazing for Frakes and I remember as a fan it just sounded like really cool at a time like I think it was kind of a smart move and like yeah it's going to get a lot of fans uh, talking it's already kind of a Borg centric movie I think a very smart on the part of uh, Rick Berman the producer here yeah it's a decision that I think worked out incredibly well for them and just to the legacy of Jonathan Frakes so important you know every convention you go to People are bringing up him directing First Contact. He talks about it a lot. Um, he's had fun with it. He does, you know, commentaries on the Blu-rays that are really fun. Um, I, I don't know that, like, from a creative standpoint, like, I always wish that Star Trek aspired for, like, bigger directors on some of their films, but this one worked out very well for them, so I can't uh, besmirch them for that at all. And, again, it... it helped further the legend of Jonathan Frakes. One of the most likable men I've ever seen at a Star Trek con. So, you know, good for him. You've seen me at a Star Trek con, haven't you? Jonathan Frakes, one of the most likable men I've ever seen at a Star Trek con. Okay. <laughs> well, look, he, uh, he uh, does Star Trek First Contacts, um, and then he's off to doing episodes of Deep Space Nine. He's doing The Search Part 2, uh, Meridian, uh, Past Tense Part 2. So he's really kind of in there in the season three era of uh, Deep Space Nine, which is uh, interesting uh, as well. And he goes on to do stuff for Voyager. Like, he is keeping part of the family uh, when it comes to directing episodes before he gets his second try at that uh, with, with regards to the Star Trek franchise with, with Star Trek Insurrection, which um, I think you and I both like the movie. I think we we both agree it's a little bit underrated by the fans. You know, like, it's actually kind of... um it's probably more in spirit of next generation than any of the other movies that they produced. So I have to give them props for that. And I think that he actually captured that spirit quite well. I just don't think mainstream audiences. And, and I also the marketing, I don't know how you quite necessarily market this movie in a way that's going to grip fans who are just coming off the adventures of, you know, Picard versus Borg either. Well, it's kind of like the star Trek beyond problem where we both enjoy that movie. It's, you know, a fun watch, but like, how would you market it to an audience who's like, how is it going to ever blow their hair back? And um, when they see a trailer and with like um, with insurrection, like what is in that movie? You can market to an audience that they're like, who's not familiar with star Trek, where they're going to actually be excited by what they're seeing. Like they marketed like F Murray Abraham screaming and stuff like that. Like that's fair enough showing the crew, you know, holding phaser rifles and giving it kind of a Western feel fine. Like that's probably the best they could do, but Again, that is a very tough film to market when, I mean, I think the, uh, the fans have always felt like, why didn't they, why didn't they just use Q? Like, I why know. not have a marketable component there? It just would have made so much more sense. So I can't really fault Jonathan Frakes for that one underperforming financially. Um, I understand why. <laughs> well, look, the, uh, the tagline on the movie poster was, you know, the battle for paradise has begun. Do you think it should have been uh, saddle up, lock and load, 
Probably, yeah. Um, the poster was kind of weird looking too, wasn't it? It was like, I think the first time F. Murray Abraham has gotten his uh, mug featured so prominently since Amadeus on any sort of uh, uh, film poster, right? Probably, yeah. Yeah, it was like a weird looking poster, as I recall, where, I don't know, it didn't scream excitement. <laughs> it, it was like his, like like this weird kind of um, illustration of uh, his yeah. face of uh oh what's uh Ruafo's face and then like enterprise at warp over the the baku planet from what mm-hmm. i recall like it, it's not going to be super uh, as super engaging as you would see with like the the first contact poster you've got like data the borg queen uh picard you've got like borg drones all lined up in like the uh, mighty ducks v formation you know like that's going to grab you know your eyeballs yeah, it seemed like they were struggling with art concepts with those last two TNG movies because the uh, Shinzon uh, images on the posters for Nemesis were kind of weird too. Um, they didn't seem to really go into those movies really um, with a good sense of what would sell to an audience. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wonder if their instincts were correct though. And like oftentimes you have a movie and that performs well. And I think the instinct is like, well, let's just do more of the same. Mm-hmm. And I think Rick Berman had a good instinct, like, well, let's let's try to do something different. And I I think that made sense. It just I I I can't emphasize it enough. Can we? We've said it again and again. Everybody should go read uh, Fade In, which was Michael Pillar's um, kind of uh, behind the scenes look at the making of Star Trek Insurrection. It's absolutely fascinating uh, for any person who's just interested in how a movie gets made. Um, this has had like a very odd genesis, like one very um, peculiar within Hollywood in that you actually have like kind of a writer is there from the beginning and there to see it through the end. And I think you can thank Rick Berman for that. But it, it's I, I would say that some of the issues with this movie are, are kind of there from the start in that they were trying to make something like that maybe there just wasn't an audience for at the time. Mm-hmm. I wonder, do you have a good sense? Like I'm trying to remember the details, like how much Jonathan Frakes was giving in terms of notes on the development of that story. You know, I, I do recall it was very much kind of a triumvirate between uh, Berman, Pillar, and Frakes. And like they went into kind of, you know, the studio bungalow for extended periods of time, giving each other notes about, you know, what, what's working the story, what needs to be, you know, punched up a little bit, uh, some of the story points that might be difficult. It really did seem kind of like a, a three person effort there. Right. Okay. And I, I, I think he had, I think Frakes had a lot more input in this than he ever did in First Contact. Right. Oh, totally. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, is that maybe another reason why Jonathan Frakes is such a strong Trek ambassador is that he really understands the world of Star Trek. Um, when you look at some of the other actors, whether it's Shatner, whether it's Patrick Stewart, um, their input in terms of, you know, what they contributed to the franchise is invaluable, but I've often raised my eyebrow when it came to kind of when they would, throw out ideas as to what they thought the franchise should do whereas i feel like jonathan frakes very much understands exactly what star trek storytelling is i i I totally buy that and you can just tell because if he's embedded in the editing bays for hours and hours he is working with rick berman all the time there's just kind of the shorthand develops like you know the beats to hit you know what uh, you know 
feels like Star Trek and what doesn't. Like I, I think that really works for him in a way that you bring on somebody like Stuart Baird who did who directed Nemesis and he's going around calling Jordy an alien, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's a bummer that Frakes didn't do Nemesis. Like why not just close it out? But I would believe that actually after uh, Insurrection's box office, it was like, okay, let's try something different. Yeah, and I think he must have understood that. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's any hard feelings. It's just like they're they're trying to keep the franchise going. They need to shake things up a little bit. Let's bring on, you know, like a a writer like uh, John Logan, who had that credit with uh, Gladiator. Let's bring on like a, a very well-respected director sometime, or very well-respected editor, sometimes director in Stuart Baird. It just that that movie just it, it had the kind of very deflated sense to Nemesis. You know, it just I, I I wonder if it was the same script, but it was Freaks directing. Just I I wonder if the um just the tone of it would have felt more like Star Trek in a way that would have been more appealing to the fans. I think so. It mean it probably wouldn't be a great film, but it would probably feel kind of like Insurrection, just closer to what Star Trek is. Yeah. So, look, th- after that, there, there's a sizable gap in which, you know, Frakes is involved with the franchise. Uh, I, I get it, you know, like, uh, uh, but that's in terms of directing. I, I think we can touch on his appearances throughout a lot of the series in just a moment. But maybe why don't we talk about kind of his involvement with conventions and maybe how that contrasts to maybe that of, of other performers. Kim, you get the sense. The um, convention organizers, they like having Jonathan Frakes on stage, do they not? I would say so, 100%, yes. Like, this man is a draw. I remember, like, probably one of the best experiences we had is uh, we were at Star Trek Las Vegas, <laughs> and um, I, did, I had no clue what's going on. I, I just, Marina Sirtis is up on stage. I hear Jonathan Frakes' booming voice over a microphone going, Marina! Marina, she has no idea where he is. He's hiding in the audience. Uh, the dolt that I am, it took me uh, a few too many beats to realize that he was sitting, what, Cam, like maybe four or five seats away from us in the same row, just like uh, totally trolling Marina Sirtis uh, from our role. What an amazing experience that was. Yeah, and it'll never happen again now that we gave up those seats. <laughs> that's that, that. Well, that's true. Yeah, and that's something that when I started going to conventions, I never really realized would be that well him and marina sirtis would be like the comic highlights of any convention but i mean i have so many fond memories of him at these conventions and that he always seems very lively very engaged but also has a little bit of a wry tone you know he'll joke about some of the questions he's having fun with the whole process you see some actors on stage and it's very much like a homework assignment it's like okay i you know i'm getting paid to be here i'll answer your questions and then i'm out of here um with Frakes, it often feels like he's just hanging out. Like, I'm sure, you know, he's paid well to be there. There's professional, you know, aspects of the job he has to do to do the, to do these conventions. But he gives off the vibe of almost like a big Lebowski-like figure who's just there to hang out with people and have fun. Like, he just seems so mellow. And I remember when we went to the Seattle Con, Jonathan Frakes, um... I don't know what was going on. I think he'd said he'd had like back pain and had taken back medication. I don't know, even know if he was joking. Who could even tell? But he spent like a section of his panel just like laying on the stage, taking phone calls. Um, at one point, he started like reading the moderator's notes and making fun of them. Like 
it was just a wild <laughs> convention appearance. And I remember, um, you know, Fallen Coast Benjamin Young, I think showed up like a little late or something and was like, like, what's going on? Isn't this Jonathan Frakes? I'm like, yep. <laughs> yeah, but you'll never get a convention appearance like that from like 99.9% of the actors. Like, who else could like pull that off? It, it, like, it was thrilling. Like, every, like, he had the entire audience wrapped around his pinky finger at that point. Yeah, like, it always seems like he has a very good sense of humor about himself. He's serious about, I think, his role within Star Trek. You know, he'll talk at great lengths about, you know, the episodes he's worked on or his ideas. But he also does not treat himself seriously. And I think the fans love him for that. And it's something that makes him very approachable. Um, I have loved a lot of Shatner panels. I will continue to show up for them. I love what he did on the Star Trek franchise. He is not a man that seems accessible in any way, shape, or form to fans. Yeah, and I think maybe that bolsters our argument about why Frakes is kind of the new ambassador for Star Trek as well. He is accessible. Kim, we got our photo with him at that same convention, and he could not have been nicer to us. Like, he just see like, that, that was, I think, one of my, that might have been, like, my very first photo ever with, with a, oh, no, it wasn't. I, I take that back. But I just remember that, that was my favorite photo session ever with, with an actor. He's just he seemed genuinely interested in what we were telling him. And, and I, like that he is an actor. So uh, I, I trust that uh, he, he was acting at that moment, but like um, I, if the fans are behind him, like I can understand why he's the new ambassador. I have done photo ops with many Trek stars. Some are delightful um, and some are not. <laughs> and, you know, I have referenced Shatner. I have done a photo with Shatner. I'm happy with the photo. But you look at the photo of me with Shatner and you look at the one of us with Frakes, there's a very big difference in energy going on in those photos and you can <laughs> see it in the image. Like it's very clear. Yeah. Frakes, as you said, he is an actor. He's been doing these cons forever. Um, he's encountered all manner of fan awkwardness, I'm sure. But he always seems to have a good sense of humor about it. And even if he does get tired with it, he doesn't show it at all. And so it makes him a lot of fun. And I mean, again, the photo is amazing. I'll probably work into the um, album art for this episode. Well, so Cam, like uh, before we jump into his appearances throughout uh, all the various uh, franchises uh, or, or series here, I, I, I wonder if we want to touch on his return mm. to the fold here in, in which he is tapped to start you know, directing episodes of uh, star trek discovery and he, he does a couple there and that continues on to star trek picard you know how much of it is a marketing move how much of it is genuine interest in bringing him back into it how much of it is just knowing that this guy is just one of those journeyman directors he knows the visual language of star trek he knows the storytelling language of star trek he can get the job done i think it's maybe a think... little bit of all three I, I think it is kind of a combination because it felt like having him direct some discovery was a little bit of a blessing from Star Trek royalty because, you know, Nimoy wasn't around. I'm sure they would have wanted some sort of Nimoy contribution had he been around the way that the JJ movies did. But having Frakes come in direct episodes, it was kind of like, you know, like Rick Berman is gone. Like he doesn't, attach himself to star trek anymore like maybe if he did they would have 
you know, hey, Rick Berman blessed this production. Maybe they would have tried something like that. But it feels like Jonathan Frakes very much represents the Berman era now. And I think bringing him in was politically very smart. It made fans enthusiastic at a time when maybe they were very wary of Discovery. And even still, Discovery Season 1 in particular had a lot of people very uncomfortable with where it was taking Star Trek. But just uh, as you said... But, but they, they would not have known that at the time, though. No, they, that's when, true. When that's true. But it is... Offer him a a, a chance to direct, uh, I think, like two episodes in Season 1? For sure. Yes, he did two. But just knowing... You're a new Star Trek show. Star Trek has a history of fans being angry at the new show. It just makes sense to have him there as sort of that seal of approval just to bring in fans. Um, But again, as you said, they're not bringing him in if they don't think he can do the job. And he did do the job and he had some pretty decent episodes in season one Discovery. Yeah, they brought brought back uh, Robert Duncan McNeil as well. Do you think they may have uh, put out feelers to Roxanne Dawson too? Um. I've never had any sort of confirmation on that one. Um, I would like to think so. Well, what's your best guess? Yeah, well, I mean, I would hope so. Um, do I think they did? <sighs> out, of, out of the three actor-directors that I, I just named, she is the most prolific. And I, I just wonder, and she is kind of considered like a top-tier television director. Like, she is in high demand on, like, HBO series and all that. She works a lot. I, I, I feel confident saying like maybe uh at least some um uh overtures were made towards her team to see if she would be interested in doing something like this that would not surprise me the only thing i wondered is um would she have been viewed as a little too prolific for them at that point in terms of like the caliber of tv she's doing i don't know They, they wouldn't hire her because she's too prolific like maybe they would say that's beyond what we can get on star i don't know like do you think that they would even take that into account or is it just like perfect bring her in it adds prestige or would they have talked themselves out of it uh no i I, why would they have talked themselves out of hiring her well like what's the director lineup on season one discovery like is there many directors with extensive like prestige tv backgrounds i i'd have to look yeah i know the list you know yeah that's just that was my only question mark, but I mean I would hope they. I yeah. I, I I I'm gonna go back to what I said before. I, I'd be genuinely surprised if they did not make overtures to Roxanne Dawson, who is the most uh, you know uh, prolific of the uh, actor turned directors uh, that Star Trek has delivered from that Berman era. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what? I'm having vague memories of her saying she was like just really busy. I think someone may have asked her that at a con and it, w- it wasn't like a in-depth answer, but I seem to have vague memories of like, I'm very busy kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, moving on from there, you know, like he continues on with, with it's look, he's not just working in season one. It's not just doing that. Like, okay, here's a pat on the back. You do a couple things. They keep bringing him back more and more. He's going into uh, Star Trek Picard to direct episodes there. I, I maybe kind of a perfect time for us to like go into his appearances, you know, beyond the next generation. He he's doing all four movies there. Um, I'll say that Riker in the movies, he never really had a story though. Like he was so magnetic in the series, uh, both as kind of grumpy Riker and swashbuckling Riker. And I, I don't know. It was, was he mostly swashbuckling Riker in, in the moments that he had in the film franchise camp? It felt like it. It was a lot of fight scenes. I'm thinking of Nemesis or 
um, the exciting flying the ship stuff and the briar patch and insurrection. Um, I guess you got a little bit of the human element in first contact with it's him with Cochrane, where that's sort of the heart of that movie. But yeah, that's probably the strongest in terms of the films of like a actual character story for him. But even then, it's very much falling secondary to, you know, Data and Picard. It is the Data Picard show for those films, which if you go back and watch the series, you know, people will be surprised that it, it really is more of the Picard and Riker show for the bulk of Next Generation. It, it, it's an ensemble. I, I'm not saying it's not, but it, it's Riker has so much more to do any given episode of Next Generation than he does in the four movies. And so I just uh, look, I, I, I know you have. What, like a hundred minutes to cram in as much as you can with all the characters. You've got to introduce a new antagonist, and there's a story that you're focused on Picard, but there also needs to be a data storyline. It's easy for him to get kind of um, lost a little bit, but I, I, I think they're really missing out by not making more of an effort to have Riker more prominent. You know, I, I, I can, you know, picture that moment of Riker instead of Lily going into uh, the uh, observation lounge to talk to Picard about his Captain Ahab fixation. Well, I think it also does a disservice to the supporting characters in those films in that, do you want the audience to care about them? Because if you do, you're doing kind of a poor job at getting the people that didn't watch the show to actually care about these supporting cast members over the four films. It's just, uh, I, I, I don't know what the easy solution would have been to this. And I think maybe they kind of figured, you know what? Let's just make it all Picard and Data. I, they're the most iconic from the series. Frakes is going to be busy directing half these movies anyway. We don't need to overload him at this point. It is a frustration, though, of ensemble TV jumping to the movies. I remember watching Serenity and being like, wow, Book really didn't do very much in this movie. You know, like a lot of the characters we spend a lot of time with in uh, Firefly didn't uh, necessarily get a lot to do in Serenity. And unfortunately, that was the same thing with the TNG crew. Well, yeah, we didn't really get to see what Book was up to again until uh, season three of Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> exactly. It all looped back around. <laughs> yeah. All right, so look, uh, we, we see him in Star Trek First Contact. Uh, he pops up uh, in Defiance, the season three Deep Space Nine episode, but as one Tom Riker disguised as William Riker. I remember uh, seeing the previews for this one when it was airing. I was just like, oh, Riker's back on Deep Space Nine? I am tuning in for this stuff that, that that was just kind of like very exciting for me to, to see on screen did, did you have any idea that freaks would be coming back as you were doing your deep space nine uh first time watch you know like on your dvds definitely not and actually when i watched this episode uh, defiant um i didn't actually know who thomas Riker was because i hadn't seen second chances so believe me this whole thing was a real head scratcher <laughs> So wait, did you think that, okay, when Odo's giving the exposition in that scene, explaining it all, were, were you like, okay, did this happen, like, between uh, movies? Or, like, did you think it was an actual episode? Or were you just utterly confused by it all? I think it was a combination of all of those things. Like, I had to just have the, uh, the faith that this was explained in an episode of TNG, but I just remember the moment where he peels off the sideburns is, like, played as a reveal. I was baffled as to what they were telling me visually in that moment. 
Wow. Wow. Well, you know, I, I'll say this. I, I was a little confused as well when I... Yeah. He peels off his uh, sideburns. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Act break. <laughs> but... It's the sort of thing that, yeah, when you actually watch TNG, as I should have seen that episode before I watched DS9, I suppose, um, it has a lot of meaning. And I'm actually kind of impressed they felt compelled to pay that character off in DS9. I'm Because they didn't do... I mean, you had Q and Vash showing up in uh, season one of DS9 in a okay episode that sort of pays off those characters. But it felt like they were trying to get away from that a little more. And then to bring back Thomas Riker felt kind of a really fun idea, but I'm almost surprised it happened just because of the fact it's so tied to, well, it's one episode of TNG that isn't exactly, you know, it's not like a recurring character. Like if you'd brought lore over to uh, DS9, sure. I would totally understand. Yeah. I, I still go back to why was Sela never brought on to Deep Space Nine? That just, such a lost opportunity. Well, you know what? You had Gowron, and while I hadn't yeah. watched TNG, I understood Gowron, and um, he had plenty of episodes to actually serve as a character on DS9, so that makes complete sense. But yeah, the um, Thomas Riker, it's a head-scratcher, but it's a really good episode. I have absolutely nothing really bad to say about it, just that for me, back in, you know, whatever year it was, um, I was baffled, but um, it was actually really fun to revisit that character, and I think that episode in particular probably does more for the legacy of Thomas Riker than Second Chances would have, where we actually understand him much more as an individual than we did at the end of Second Chances. Well, it's just very obvious that they like working with Frakes. And any excuse they can find to bring him back, they, they do so in Star Trek Voyager with Death Wish, in which uh, the Quinn, the uh, that that particular Q is kind of on trial for his life or maybe I should say his death and for some reason that didn't really make all that much sense um Riker is called as a witness and his memory is wiped uh about the Voyager crew being in the Delta Quadrant was this just a shameless excuse to have freaks in the promotional material for this camp 100% yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm sure that they were like, hey, we should try to work in some cameos. I mean, it's just good for ratings, right? If you can throw Riker into a trailer. Was he in the teaser? I don't know if you remember. Uh, not No, he wasn't in the teaser. Um, okay. Because uh, I, I think we only... The, the teaser, I think it was just what they beam Quinn out of the comet. And the teaser ends with him wearing a... A, a uniform and they can't understand why this guy living in a comet is wearing a uniform um oh sorry i meant when i said teaser I, what i should have said was the promo for the episode oh um honestly i, I don't recall what the uh the promo for the episode was but if Riker is in that promo it makes complete sense just for voyager's ratings and it is a good thing to market um so I do think it was like, we've got to get an icon over. Um, Frakes has, you know, directed a couple episodes. I think it is very much, let's just get him on. And I'm sure when they set the show in the Delta Quadrant, they, well, I'm sure they kind of knew they were shooting themselves in the foot, potentially, for bringing characters over. But you could see the Voyager, they brought in Barkley, and um, I think Frakes made a lot of sense as well. Hey, they brought in Sula as well. Mm, yeah, good point, yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's too much to delve into with regards to his appearance on Death Wish, but I, I think maybe this brings up kind of a very interesting kind of what-if scenario. 
And it really speaks to Freaks being kind of the ambassador of Star Trek. Uh, it's that they briefly floated the idea of like, what if it is, you know, uh, Tom Riker as captain of the USS Voyager? Like it wasn't necessarily set in stone that this was going to be, you know, uh, the ca- Captain Catherine Janeway or Elizabeth Janeway, as I think she was originally known as. It was going to be possibly Tom or even like uh, Will Riker. I, I, I'm blanking on, on which one or maybe, maybe both ideas were floated, but it would have been a Captain Riker series. I think this could have worked. You know, I, I honestly think that he had the chops. He had the gravitas to be the next captain of a starship. He definitely could have done it. It would have changed fundamentally everything about Voyager. Yeah, you might have had the same kind of actors on the show, but the themes of Voyager would be taken out completely with Riker. Um, it is sort of an interesting alternate real- or alternate timeline experiment to try to figure out what that show even would have been. Um, because you think of the energy of Riker on TNG, um, or, or whether it's you know William Riker or Thomas Riker, but they bring a very different energy than what Kate Mulgrew's doing and the stories they are writing around um, Kate Mulgrew. Yeah, there there would not have been a you know Riker seven of nine sort of mentorship. I I don't think I think that came up naturally just with regards to the dynamics between those two characters and and like who knows. Maybe they would have done chemistry tests with different actors for maybe the role of Chakotay or Neelix or whoever. Like, like the, the it would have been a fundamentally different series. Uh, you know, maybe the same concept, but I think it would have been a very different look to the show moving forward. You probably would have had a female first officer, right? I believe that. Yeah. 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 So, Cam, I. I I get what they were trying to do with These Are the Voyages, the <laughs> series finale yes. uh, Enterprise, you know, and I think this is further evidence that, you know, Jonathan Frakes is kind of the new ambassador for Star Trek in that they bring back a profoundly iconic character. And uh, Berman and Braga, they, they were trying to close off the end of an era, like 17 continuous years of Star Trek on the air, the same crew, you know, same producer uh, many of the same writers throughout many of the same performers you know making appearances across these episodes i get what they were trying to do it just it just felt like a total slap in the face to those fans that stuck around for enterprise at that period of time like this just was the worst finale yeah oh it's terrible um it is interesting though that this episode it kind of almost isn't an enterprise episode it is very much that bow on the berman era and as they always said, a Valentine to Star Trek fans. And it is just really interesting that they built it around Riker and Troy, seeing them as the best representatives of this ent- entire era of Star Trek. Um, I'm sure that, you know, Patrick Stewart was not going to be answering any phone call about appearing on an Enterprise finale. But the idea of tying it to Pegasus is. I was on the Enterprise, <laughs> I was the captain. <laughs> I would love to hear him say, make it so, T'Pol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so those two make a lot of sense, but it is just baffling. I still don't understand the idea to tie it all to the Pegasus. Like, I get it in that, you know, it's an episode where Riker has to make a decision. Of course, you're going to want to explore that. But of the episodes, it's such a strange one to build your 
kind of your finale to your entire TV era around. Like, I love the episode, the Pegasus, but is it held up as like one of the most iconic episodes of all time? I, I think they mostly just wanted to find a situation in, in which Riker would have had time to do this holographic program because of the dilemma he's doing it. I, I think it's for purely pragmatic storytelling purposes rather than more of those kind of thematic purposes that maybe you're alluding to. What if they had said it during the survivors? <laughs> that you know, perfect. Uh, uh, I, I think you've rewritten Star Trek history right there, Cam. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's it's a train wreck, but uh, it's interesting nonetheless within the career of Riker, and the last we think we're going to see of Riker for a while. Yeah, but look, uh, not so fast. Uh, jump ahead. Oh, Cam, only, what, uh, 18 years? Mm. <laughs> or maybe not quite that long, maybe about 15 years, but um, Riker's back in Nepenthe, which I think you and I both believe is the, the highlight of season one of Star Trek Picard. Uh, he's also directing episodes... You know, like um, Stardust City Rag. Hmm. Uh, not our favorite. Uh, you know, so I, I'm not going to hold that against him. But I think popping in on Riker and Troy at a very different period in their time, in, in, in their lives, I, I I think that was fascinating. Like, um, it, it's tough that like such a great episode of a brand new series is so contingent on our own nostalgia, but I think they actually established these as three-dimensional characters, not just, you know, there for people to chew on member berries necessarily. Like, I, I really do think that this was kind of a an exceptional revisit for both Riker as well as Troy, but I think the writers knew that this would really hit kind of a sweet spot for fans. Yeah, I remember going into this episode thinking like, yeah, we'll have a Riker and Troy cameo or, you know, short appearance. Like, oh, yeah, that'll be fun. But kind of expecting it to be like that Voyager or Enterprise appearance where it's like, well, we're really just kind of using them as props. Um, yeah. You know, kind of like, hey, everyone remember how great Star Trek is? That kind of thing. And I was kind of blown away. And if you go back and listen to that podcast episode, I think we were all very um, thrilled with what they did with those characters. But I just didn't expect such a deep, psychological study of Riker and Troy and their lives in the many years post TNG. Like it's, it feels like it was not only elevating those characters, but also just the level of performance we saw from the two actors playing them. What about the, um, Oh yeah. Factor that they're going for with the finale at, in Arcadia ego part uh, two, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, to me, it wasn't as if, like, he shows up at the end, and I never saw it coming. I kind of thought that's what was going to happen, because they alluded to the fact that, you know, he's still a reservist, and blah, blah, blah. Like, to me, I, I didn't jump out of my seat when I saw him appear a second time. That felt more like the prop. Like, yeah. get Riker on the bridge, and just the fact that, well, um, you know, his uh, former captain dies mere minutes later, and Riker's not around in any way, shape, or form... <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, you know, shades of Jordy's, uh, blank stare when Data dives to his death. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, guys, missed opportunity. <laughs> like, I know that, I think, believe the, the Riker moment was actually a reshoot and kind of a last minute deal. Um, but again, missed opportunity. Oh, I, 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 I'll say this though. When he does come back, uh, shortly thereafter at the very end, uh, you know, spoilers dot dot dots 
Okay. You've been warned, people. Uh, Star Trek Lower Decks, uh, no small parts, the finale there. It's very much a similar situation in at in Arcadia Ego, in which she's there to come to the rescue at the very end. I, I had complete opposite reaction. That was kind of the thrilling moment there, I, where I jumped down my seat, and uh, Troy is once again kind of by his side in the captain's chair of the, the USS Titan. That, that moment really worked for me, even though it was... Eh, a bit of a Deus Ex Machina, although they had set up kind of the Titan stuff earlier on in the episode. Yeah, I mean, there's something about what Lower Decks 2 uh, does, too, that um, is something that Trek seems to be leaning a little more into. There's shades of it in Picard, which is understanding the comic nature of Riker. And you've talked about it before on the show, the idea of... Are they writing Riker or Jonathan Frakes? And it's something that happens in so many TV shows where, you know, after they've written for a um, actor for enough time, the elements of the actor's personality start to bleed into the character. And Riker at this point feels like a very specific comic creation in the way he's depicted on Lower Decks and moments in Picard that I find very fun. And I, I don't know, like, were people back in the day watching TNG like wowed by how um, like kind of low-key hilarious for, uh, Riker is. I don't think so. Like, yeah. I think he has his moments. Uh, I, I'm still going to go back to my favorite line of all uh, that he delivered, which is in The Perfect Mate, in which he departs uh, Femke Jansen's um, uh, door jam, and he rushes off, hits his combat, and says, Riker Bridge, if you need me, I'll be at Holodeck 3. You know, like that was... Uh, <laughs> One of those kind of more subversive uh, deliveries there. I I don't know if people are quite keen into like the the underlying hilarity that could uh, be involved with this character. Sometimes there there are some of the broader moments, like you know he's on Riza in kind of horn dog mode, bringing back that game you know to mm. the ship, you know that that sort of stuff. It felt like the show was often ridiculing kind of how stiff he was when you have moments with Q you know, poking fun at Riker and things like that. But there's like this weird kind of low key crazed energy to what he brings to Riker that's underneath the surface of so much of TNG, just moments of Riker. And I almost am baffled by the character of Riker and the fandom around him because on paper, he's the least relatable Star Trek character, probably. Um, you compare him to say like the quirkier ones like Data and, um, Jordy, even Troy, Riker doesn't really jump out, and yet there's something so strange about him when you really compile all those elements, as Lower Decks did, with you know the trombone, um, you know all the jazz music, playing up kind of the um, kind of the <laughs> over the top delivery he sometimes does. Like there's a lot of kind of bizarre elements in this character that kind of simmer under the surface in TNG, but are all there. Like he's very much kind of a larger than life sort of guy from Earth. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting creation. What do you think comes next with regards to Frakes's involvement with the franchise? Do you, like, do you think he can count on kind of that that steady gig of you know directing a couple episodes, you know, uh, every year? Maybe he uh, gets another uh, vo- couple voice opportunities in Lower Decks. So, what is the future of Frakes when it comes to being the ambassador of Star Trek camp? Well, I think he's definitely going to direct some episodes of Picard and Discovery going forward. Um, Wouldn't shock me at all if we get another Riker appearance in Season 2 Picard. Um, Lower Decks, it seems like 
he'll be tied into some of the ongoing story um, of season two, Lower Decks. So I think uh, fans of Riker have plenty in store. I don't think we're going to see him pop up on Discovery, but there may be a, an appearance of some sort on Prodigy at some, you know, further down the road. Do you think if they were to bring him back for Discovery, it'd be similar to that moment in season three in which they have that holographic representation of that guy in season one next-gen uniform? <laughs> I can only hope. <laughs> Beardless Riker? We need to bring back Beardless Riker. Like, that's something they could have fun with, maybe, is... Uh de-age Jonathan Frakes and bring us back a beardless Riker, I think fans would go crazy for it. You only need to de-age him to the Star Trek Insurrection era. Yep, it's true. Well, excellent. Uh, Cam, I, I I think we've made a compelling argument as to why Riker is maybe the new ambassador, or I should say Jonathan Frakes is the new ambassador for Star Trek. I have a question for you, actually, raised by friend of the show Scott Hardy. I was talking to him earlier today. And told him the topic for tonight's podcast. And he, he agreed with us about Jonathan Frakes. He thought he was the best ambassador for the era. But he said, who do you think's next in line? And I was curious what your response was. Uh, I, I haven't thought about that. So why don't you share your thoughts and give me a second to think about what that might be. So I was batting back and forth trying to decide if I thought it would be perhaps Kate Mulgrew or Jerry Ryan. With Jerry Ryan, I was kind of leaning maybe a little more towards because of the ongoing presence on Picard, um, how beloved she is at the conventions, how open she is with fans as well. It, it seemed like she was a good one, although she doesn't have the directing background. Neither of those two actors have the directing background with Star Trek, but those were two that popped out. Um, Michael Dorn's the other option. We just haven't seen much of him actually on screen in Star Trek in a long time. I just, I go back to the idea like, Nimoy was unique, and Frakes is unique, and there's just so many parallels between their respective involvements within the franchise. I don't think that there's an obvious analog, and I, I don't quite think it is Jerry Ryan. I don't quite think it is Kate Mulgrew, and I, I, I'm just thinking about how intertwined some people are within the franchise, and I wonder if it's just going to have to be like, I know it sounds kind of like cliche, but is it Patrick Stewart? Is he in line after Frakes at this point? He might be now that he's doing Picard again. That might shift the balance a little more towards him as the next in line. But I'm also just curious, like, how long his involvement is. We don't know how yeah. long Picard runs. Like, you know, post, say we say Picard wraps up after three seasons. Is Patrick Stewart still showing up for cameos in future Star Trek? I seriously doubt it. I just wonder if... Had, had Robert Duncan McNeil been able to continue directing uh, this new era of Star Trek, like he's got kind of the same credentials as Riker does, or as Frakes does. The, the difference is it's just that name recognition and that kind of iconic status. It's, Tom Paris is no you know, Will Riker, for example. Yeah, I think if um, they bring back Worf in a big way, in the future, Michael Dorn, you could make a very strong argument for. I can buy that. I can buy that. I, this is just kind of a tough one. I wonder if... Uh, uh, so we, I think, did an episode kind of comparing like different franchises. and we're, we're The crux of our argument, though, is like there's something fundamentally unique about the Star Trek community. and like There, there is no real analog within the Star Trek community. And I don't know if there's a, an analog 
right now that exists uh, for one, you know, Jonathan Frakes. I wonder what, if what it's going to take, Cam, is somebody from the uh, Kurtzman era of the television franchise. Like maybe something just really breaks through in a big way, and that uh, person maybe takes the mantle down the road. You know, maybe it is, I don't know, maybe number one, uh, Rebecca Romaine is the breakout star of Strange New Worlds, and maybe maybe she starts getting more involved with the franchise in a way that we would not expect. Maybe she becomes the new ambassador. I, I don't know. Possibly Sonequa Martin-Green as well. Um, they're very much putting her front and center as representing Star Trek right now, so you don't really know what our future holds with the franchise either. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Tyler, what are we doing next time? It's that time of year again. Every June, we discuss the current state of Star Trek. So, Cam, we are going to go kind of uh, nail down what's going on with all the different series, all the different movies, kind of maybe the status of conventions. You know, the, the it is that kind of... Uh, covid era where maybe conventions are actual reality i i will just point out we had kind of uh uh teased that we would be doing the star trek lower decks review imminently um mm-hmm. you and i we, we made the fateful decision to order steel book editions off of amazon.ca camp we are still awaiting those after the series came out what like two or three weeks ago at this point uh-huh yeah. So um, it looks as if our discs will be coming um, in the next two weeks. I'm hoping maybe sooner. Um, I think you and I can zip right through all ten episodes and the two hours of special features. I think you and I can probably aim for end of month. I think that's what we're going for at this point. I would say 100% yes, but we'll see what Amazon decides for us. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter I'm at Cam. B is in Valentine to the fans. Jonathan Frakes is Smith. You can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N as in Nimoy. Not my Valentine. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed.